this is sort of the it's like the pre-email time where blind date was still as blind date and uh that people used to write in to the contestants and go and and basically write them love letters um and go oh we'd like to go out with you and all that kind of stuff Hello, I'm Poonam and welcome to the Crew Chats podcast where I speak to the crew that work behind the scenes in the film, TV and theatre industries. For this episode, I spoke to Lydia Curry, a first assistant director. Having started a career cleaning a tape cupboard at London Weekend Television, also known as LWT, as a teenager, moving on to writing some rejection letters for a well-known dating show. Lydia went on to work in light entertainment and TV for a number of years and worked in the various positions of the AD department and now works as a first AD in TV and film. Lydia has worked on productions such as Pennyworth, Avenue 5, Hustle and Black Mirror, to name a few. Hi, Lydia. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. How about yourself? Mm, Not bad, thank you. Uh, Thank thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Now, you're a first assistant director or a first AD for shorthand. Mm -hmm. And what does that involve? Um, So I'm in charge of three things. First of all, I'm I'm ahead of the assistant directors and the assistant directors effectively run the set for the director. So, but before any of that happens in my prep, I basically am in charge of the schedule. So I will take the script or break it down into its constitute parts and I will create um, what we're going to shoot every day. I'll talk to all the other HODs, make sure that they can achieve what I'm suggesting and make sure we've got all of the equipment and everything that the director wants to achieve his or her vision. And then from there, I have to then, when we get to the floor and the shooting, I have to actually make us do what I said we'd do. Therefore, I then drive the floor for the director and make sure we complete every day. So those are the first two parts of my role. And the third one is I am head of health and safety on set. So it is up to me that to look after everybody and make sure we are due diligence with covid fire making sure stunts are properly thought out and properly protected along with the coordinator and just making sure that actually the most important bit of my job is to make sure we all go home safely ah i didn't uh, the first two i had a vague idea the third mm. one i didn't realize that yeah. well it kind of obvious when you think about it but it didn't realize mm. it was under your remit that's interesting and it's annoying that more crew don't know that actually because there's been several in in the new world of of like high-end television a lot of there's been a lot of kind of bullying and harassment training coming through from from different high-end companies and I am staggered by the number of crew who when I do say this don't know that and they don't actually know that I am available to them as somebody to share their concerns with do you know what I mean yeah. so good to know mm. actually now we had a crowd second AD on episode 18 Dan Cox who went through really kindly went through a breakdown of what each AD does but if you could just mm. give me a brief um breakdown of just your your team so uh there's me at the top and then under me is uh, the second AD is next now the second AD looks after base looks after the actors um and is responsible for the call sheet so the finer detail of the AD world or always lands with the second so they're the main point of contact for the actors they'll be telling them what they're doing the next day they'll be talking to costume and makeup making sure all their everything is ready as far as the actors are concerned and they'll have conversations for me about what's on the call sheet what's coming up for tomorrow so basically the second is sort of in charge of tomorrow 
if you see what I mean. Uh, yeah. And on a uh, but on a daily basis, they're going to get the actors through costume and makeup and get them to set for me on time for when I need them. So that's the second. The third AD or floor seconds, as I've been told off by my third several times for calling him a third, uh, the floor second, third AD, whichever you choose, uh, is basically my right-hand person on set. So they are the one that I disseminate information through. Um, they're in charge of all the runners. They kind of make sure that everything's flowing, that the actors are kind of standing by for the next scene, that everybody travels when I want them, that transport is in the right place, that um, the actors are looked after, tea tables looked after, that kind of stuff. They'll look after the background action and make sure the only creative bit of the AD role is the third, actually, where they get to choreograph background action. And then from there, you've got the, the runner. So you'll often have a base runner uh, at base with the second doing the day-to-day -day stuff for them and then you'll have the runners looking after the floor and you know making sure everything's quiet that there's someone on the red light and bell that, that the floor runs as efficiently and as smoothly as possible ah thank you uh, for mm. that so how important is that team dynamic uh for you I mean, absolutely enormous absolutely enormous i think uh the ad's is a real it really shows you what that you're only as strong as your weakest link I remember I did a film once where all my runners were really new and they didn't understand how important they were. They thought that their work didn't matter. And I had to take them all together and sit them all down and just go, listen, you know, you are so important. If you don't get your stuff right, we won't finish. You know, so you really and and, and they all really stepped up and, and it was so much better as a result because everything on a film set is needed or we wouldn't have it there. Yeah. So the idea that anybody is more important than another I mean, yes, you could argue that Tom Crude is more important than the person who makes your tea. Of course you could. I'm not that ridiculous. But <laughs> <laughs> there is a reason you are paid to be there, and that is because your role is important. And I try to make sure all my team understand that, that actually when you mess up, it's me that apologises to the director on your behalf, that I am your leader and I expect you to support me in the best way you possibly can because we are a team and I will take the fall for you and you make me look wonderful so let's do it <laughs> do you see what I mean <clears throat> but so no it is absolutely a team thing and it can't be anywhere other way so actually you mentioned something there the director I guess that it's their overall vision that you're everyone's sort of working what well, everyone's working towards bringing mm. together how important is that relate your relationship specifically with the director because you are kind of mm. you're their right hand person that, that's going yes. around disseminating the information that they need <clears throat> to disseminate yes it, it's it's actually a very difficult tightrope because I've got three bosses so the director is one of my bosses obviously assistant director it's in the title the producer is one of my bosses and the line producer is the other body, other one and I basically have to walk the tightrope between the three where there will often be if that dynamic isn't very healthy there will often be ways where a producer will try and get me to control a director or a director will try and get me to get something past a producer because ultimately it's the producer's film not the director's and directors don't often remember that <laughs> for obvious reasons and, and the best way to get a best film is to give the director full right. power of what they're doing but full power often means a lot of money <laughs> a lot of films don't have a lot of money so <laughs> there is this kind of inevitable balance between the pair and I've said it before one one of the most key things that I think an AD does is you find when your director has been talked into something 
that's the point you walk in because invariably what happens is the producer goes, we're not going there because that's really expensive and we can't do that. So let's go here. It's fine, isn't it? And the director kind of goes, yeah. And you know full well that actually there's, it could stop that conversation right now. You're going to be doing this one. You are going to be doing this one because they'll get grumpy about it. They'll turn around on the day and they'll go, actually, I don't want that. I want that. <laughs> and then we'll end up doing it on the day with no planning. So let's just stop and let's talk about the one that you actually want and find a way that we can afford to do what you actually want. Because all that will happen is when we get to the day, you won't do it. You'll change your mind. I mean, it's almost every single time I've noticed that I'm like, no, no, hang on just a minute. because we're going to do this anyway so let's just talk about how we actually achieve this in the way that we can afford because this is pointless otherwise so it can be quite a difficult job like in the states for example i've had a director talk to me about the fact that his ad's in the states aren't his at all they belong to the producer because money wins money always wins and therefore to get their next job they have to align with the producer. It's very much a British thing that we align with director and then have to kind of do this weird tightrope thing between between all of them. So sometimes it works beautifully. Sometimes it's dreadful. (laughs) How do you deal with that situation? It it genuinely, it's about the personalities you're drawn. You know, sometimes it's absolutely fine because the thing to remember is that everybody knows that this is true and therefore there comes a point where they are more senior than I am, all of them, and I have to go, look, I'm out. Look, this is your, you have to now talk to each other I've done everything I can to marry this up and it isn't working so you two have to thrash it out and when you come with come up with a solution let me know and that is that is one of the only things which is that saving grace that I know there's only so much I can do and ultimately it's not my responsibility to complete the schedule it's the director's and ultimately I'm not in charge of the budget the producer is so do you know what I mean ultimately I'm doing the absolute best I can for all of them but if they can't agree it's not my problem do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you just have to just feel feel the feel the characters, feel the personalities, do what you can, and apply your own knowledge and judgment and experience to the most likely outcome. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. but actually, you will never really know that until you start shooting with them. I work with some of the loveliest people in prep who turn into complete monsters. <laughs> The minute they walk onto set, I'm like, hang on, what happened to you? You were really nice 10 minutes ago. And now you're an absolute monster. And similarly, people who you gotta go, you're gonna be dreadful dream. You know, you until you shoot with them, you don't know a person, I'm afraid. Yeah, but uh, I guess sometimes a bit too late, isn't it, for you to get out of the situation? Oh, no, you can't get out. That's it. You, you've made that bed. You have to lie in it. But the, the saving grace is that we'll end. Almost every production ends. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, my God, what a, what have I done to myself for 10 weeks? You know, um, it, it's too short pass. Now, scheduling, even thinking about it, makes my mind boggle. I don't know how you start or how you put oh. all those things together. Could you um, just briefly explain? I know you sort of did touch, you touched upon it in mm. terms of when you were describing your job, what a schedule is. How do you even oh, start it, to it, get it, that together? Honestly, it's, it pronounced the best bit 
it's the best bit so do you remember that when you were a kid you're probably too young but when i was a kid you had those little tile puzzles where one piece was missing and you had to oh and you had to jig them about to make yeah to make the picture right yeah. that's basically just scheduling that's all it is it, it all it is and you do know i mean because i mean the amount of people that have asked me this over years that actually and i asked my boss this when i was a third actually there are two things that drive the schedule one is cast and one is location and one those two fall together uh and, and the other one is day and night those three, three things you can do absolutely nothing about absolutely nothing about you can't go tonight if it's still daylight outside that's obvious you can't go into a location if the door is locked to you because they're not available <laughs> that day and you can't shoot with an actor who's on another job so actually those pieces are what creates the framework for the schedule and the rest really is detail um and it is the best bit i genuinely think that the, sh- the job is shot on the when you're doing the schedule if the schedule is right you will all have a lovely time and it'll be fine Mm. if the schedule is wrong it it will never be right and you will all have a horrible time and be constantly rescheduling constantly it's all in scheduling and you know I genuinely believe that it's where the film is actually for me it's where the film is made because it's how you allow your crew to prepare for it is how you how much time you allow your director to shoot it a producer will tell me how long they expect the schedule to be and they are almost always wrong and they're always it's always too short the script is always more ambitious than the time you've got available and it's always more money than they've got always those are absolute givens um and to the point where if it's not that way i worry about it because you're like no you've been given x million of dollars by whatever the company is your ambition for this project should be high and if it's not i worry about the product actually you know to a point uh you know and and i think that's what i mean about the personalities coming into play because um the one beautiful bit about my position is you can't argue with a watch <laughs> you can't like you they have literally hired me to be queen of time you, i am their best guesser of how long a shooting day how long things take and if they choose not to listen to my opinion, there's one, there's nothing I can do about it. But two, I'm like, well, what did you hire me for? You know, yeah. it's that I'm, I'm telling you what is going to happen. If you ignore me, it's not going to make any difference. I will still be right and you will still be in a mess. <laughs> so it's kind of up to you. And it gets really old when you constantly having the same conversations on every job and every job and every producer going, well, we just need to do it. It's like, cut it then. If you just need that, then cut that scene. Oh, we can't do that. Well, what do you want me to say? I can't tell you that you're going to achieve it because you won't. And, you know, so literally every job you have those conversations and they are quite boring. However, so eventually that's why you kind of end up working with people that you know, because they know that you're right you know and that actually experience yeah exactly and they don't want to hear i mean i i always say that when the first ad starts is when the bad fairy starts everyone's been having a lovely creative time kind of playing with everything they're gonna do and everything they're gonna and it's gonna be great and then i turn up and go yeah you can't do half of this because you haven't (laughs) got enough time and they're like oh my yeah sorry about that (laughs) And they're like, can you go home again? I'm like, yeah, no problem. But it's not going to make any difference. This is the reality of your situation. And uh, yeah, they don't want to hear it at all. 
<laughs> I bet it's not. <laughs> um, in terms of the side that I work on, often we hear about script changes. And but in terms of you, in terms of when you're scheduling as well, how, I mean, mm. that's a very, um, it's a changing beast, I guess, isn't it? If they've got if yeah. they're constantly script changing, how are you dealing mm. with that on, from a scheduling perspective as well? Because it's like you said, so many factors, location, cast, time of day, mm. et cetera, weather. It, it depends. It depends largely on the show. Like, for example, um, the show I've just finished is, is a comedy. Comedy is constant rewrites, constant rewrites, because what they're doing is they're reaching for the funniest version of what they've got. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. therefore, they're constantly tweaking and tweaking. And literally every day we get rewrites every day on the show I'm on at the moment um, because that's how he does it. And that's how he makes it as funny as possible. Um, and so th- those things we are what it does practically it means you don't know your script very well which for me is very hard because you're so used to knowing absolutely everything about it you know when you're doing it you know it down to its absolute minute detail so therefore when you're when you are on set and things do change and they do go wrong you can pull anything from your brain and you know every detail that's in it you know you know when costume is delivering x or when x is going to be ready when the car is ready, you know all of those things you know it all on a job where you're constantly rewriting you never get that opportunity to feel confident that you know the script because you know if you if you read the same page 12 times by the 12th time of reading you'll you'll be struggling to find what's different yeah because you have learned that page and therefore the changes don't jump at you like they would if you were reading it fresher so that that's that's hard and you also know that it's pointless to learn it because you know you're going to get rewrite tomorrow. So you sort of never really engage with the process, which is frustrating. Yeah. But on a normal job, most script editors worth their salts would have given me a heads up for what the changes are. And often some of the changes are coming because I've requested them because we can't complete that day. And that, that scene has to go inside now. And we need to change that tonight because I'm going to run out of daylight or, you know, so there are, you know, I do work with script editors on a practical level to make oh. the scripts reflect what we need because we haven't That's got any choice. If you see what I mean, I mean, most of the schedule by the time you go into production is, is pretty locked. There isn't a huge amount of flexibility to change things. And so you do have an opportunity to go to the producers and go, okay, these new rewrites, fine, but you've added three pages on an already full day. So we're not going to achieve that. So how do we achieve that? Do we do we plan over time or do we cut back on other things that are making that day too heavy? And it becomes a discussion about how best to take it forwards because you have to do what the script says, but the script doesn't dictate, the script doesn't, turn up with another bag of money do you see what I mean so it has to happen within the parameters of what you called exactly how do you deal with last minute changes when things go wrong um changes on set normally happen because you're running out of time and there is no way out of the corner you have created for yourself so you have to think out of the box and you have to get out of it somehow and often I mean there is often uh, you know you design schedules with pockets and holes in them so that you know, I, I worked I work with a lovely director again in my comedy days. He did it every day. He enjoyed the material so much that he always, always spent far too much time in the morning laughing. <laughs> and I'm there going, could we just, no, let's do it again. Let's do it again. It's great. Do it again. And you're like, yeah, but it's the 11th time. Um, and we've got other stuff to do. Oh, dear. So, but yeah. So by 12, I'm always like, oh, 
just reschedule for him, change the course sheet. And, and by four o'clock, when he realised he was sunk, he'd come to me slightly sheepish going, um, and I'd be like, it's all right, I've done it, but maybe you listen <laughs> next time. And that he'd do that for about the first week until he kind of settled into the fact that he had to shoot more than that. So, I mean, the, you know, you, you build in what you can in the schedules, but there's some things that just don't work. There's some things that have been planned like shot wise that don't achieve anything like what you need. And those are hard because you haven't got the equipment. You can't go back. You can't get that time back that you've wasted on something that isn't working. Um, and those are difficult to get out of other than overtime because you just go, well, we haven't got it. We, it's not there. We haven't got anything yeah. out of today, but yeah, I mean, you don't know what the solution is until the problem arises. Right. So you just have to go with the flow <laughs> deal with the hand you're given. Exactly. Yes. And see what you can come up with. <laughs> keeps it, it keeps it exciting. Well, I guess, yeah, that makes your days different, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. I'm going to take it back to your beginnings and ask, um, how did you yeah. get into this world? I cleaned a tape cupboard for a week. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I literally came in. So as, as I said, I'm afraid it's nepotism all the way. My dad worked for London Weekend Television. But when, yeah, they needed a tape cupboard cleaned out and sorted out. And, you know, and I literally cleaned a tape cupboard for a week. And then I I answered the blind date desperate box, which, by the way, <laughs> this, this is how old I am. This is sort of the slightly pre-email time where blind date was still as blind date and uh, that, people used to write in to the contestants and go and, and basically write them love letters um, and go, oh, I would like to go out with you and all that kind of stuff. And the production obviously couldn't pass them on. So Hello. you had to return the letter. Oh. Kind of, Terribly sorry. It's very nice of you. Glad you enjoyed the show, but we can't. Here's your oh. And that took me two weeks to empty the blind date desk box. <laughs> it's a good story, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then I basically went around every light entertainment show that London Weekend did in the 90s. And then two years later, I joined the BBC under a lady called uh, Sarah Smith. And she did things like League of Gentlemen and um, a wonderful drama called In the Red. And like that was that really. Just in, ah. it, hooked, how, addicted, how did, I should say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you start off as a, I want to say, as a runner in the in the mm. direct AD world? Yeah, so comedy doesn't, uh, light entertainment, I should say, doesn't have the same structure as uh, drama and film. It doesn't ah. have the ADs. It has like runners and um, floor managers. Um, and, and there's nothing, you know, floor management in light entertainment unless you're doing the big live shows it's very dull um and so you know once you've opened the doors for the host to kind of walk through that's it there's nothing else for you to do and so I was like no this is boring I'm not I'm not staying here so but because the one thing that I do think is true of the industry is that it it has pockets of people in different genres like for example if you were if you are born filmically born into the big films you will stay there if you're born into comedy you will stay there if you know so I don't I don't think people move about very much um but so to to move you have to make a real beeline and stay under so I was running a long time because I didn't want to stay where I started <clears throat> yeah. see what I mean and everybody was trying to make me a stage manager and I hate props so I was like no I no no it's just, oh god I was the worst stage manager in the world <laughs> so I was fine with the actor bit but the prop bit I was like I just left them behind I've just forgot all about them it's, it's something's not nagging me that's okay I'll just leave that where it is I'm like no he's going to collect that oh my 
um and so i kind of stayed down and then yeah most most firsts uh, will agree i think that uh to be the best AD you can be, you need to have done every grade because you know everything that you're asking your team to do because you've done it yourself. You have, yeah. you need to have done all those jobs to really understand, particularly seconding, which is such a minefield. You know, it's a horror. Oh, I hated seconding. I was a terrible second. Um, you know, it doesn't suit me at all, but I've done it and uh, I'm eternally grateful that I don't have to do it anymore. No. And I tell my seconds. <laughs> I guess you value them even more than you would have if you hadn't they? Exactly. I mean, so my my one of my seconds has been with me literally 20 years. Oh, wow. And she uh she's just started producing and I was like, bye, bye, <laughs> oh, I miss you. You know, and I keep I keep kind of going, have you got two weeks off? Come and come and do this little pickup with the film for me. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't do that anymore. I'm like, sorry. Oh. But yeah, you kind of yeah, build up relationships of trust with people that are going to constantly look after your back (laughs) what are the biggest challenges and highlights of your job I genuinely believe that the biggest highlight is that we get to see things that normal people don't the variety of life that we are privileged to dip into albeit for half an hour is definitely the best bit for me that actually Mm. it's those you don't get to see what you know normal people just don't get to see what we get to see we're very privileged both good and bad you know so that is definitely the best bit and I'm sorry I forgot the first bit what else did you ask me highlights and challenges challenges what I said sorry challenges and highlights. challenges challenges wise I personally don't like working away very much I get quite miserable I kind of it's not my whole life do you know what I mean I think I'm quite a um I'm quite a masked first. I don't, the person you see on set is not the person you see at home. It's quite a, and I think that's part, partly because I was a first at 25 and I was female and there were only like three of us in the industry at the time. So you created a persona to protect you from the barrages of shit you got from old white men that thankfully have since retired. If you know what I mean, because you just got not, and I want to say untold abuse, but that sounds more more hard than it was. It was just them being themselves, but they're all dinosaurs and they're gone. But it was, and it it just, was tough. Has that? Do you think that's changed or is changing now over yes. the course of your working experience? Yes, it absolutely is. And uh, I I saw a real I saw a real marker of it on a job I did when I was pregnant. Um, you know, it was a, a beautiful piece, which is why I did it. But and um, we ended up with um, he was nice and he could do the job, but he was a very old, old fashioned grip. And these two, we had two prop girls and they I'd say they were mid 20s, um, you know, and I'm in my 40s now. So, you know, the, there's a good 15. Yeah, they are literally a generational gap behind me. And this grip, uh, did he call me Doris or, you know, one, one of those kind of derogatory female terms that's not swearing, but it isn't, it's not respectful. Not plenty, yeah. And because that's exactly how all of them talked to me when I was 17, 20, that I just went, I know what this is. And I kind of went back with the normal banter that told him off, but with the kind of jovial, it's okay, I'm not really telling you off, but I'm putting you back in your place, don't talk to me like that. And the prop girls came up to me afterwards and they were absolutely staggered and they were just like, how dare he speak to you like that? I mean, literally, what the actual, how dare he speak to you like that? And I said, actually, the very fact that you haven't been spoken to like that, you are so aghast 
at his behavior tells me that you've never really experienced it. And therefore that's great. Mm. You know, that, that is a proper marker of the fact that you have not experienced that behavior because the industry has moved on. It isn't the place it was when I started. And um, for women in particular, I'm eternally grateful for that. You know, we've all got our horror stories and some of my friends have got the worst I've ever heard. Um, but it has definitely, it's moved. It has moved. And those people don't get work. We know who they are, you know, and, and those of us who are now in more positions of authority know who they are. We know who the racists are. We know who the bigots are. Don't want them on our teams, thanks. So they've stopped working. It's it's moving. It's too slow, but it's moving. No, that is, uh, I think it's uh, really interesting because because uh, you mentioned obviously mm. as a I think you were saying that you were 25 when you became a first and as a woman. Yeah. Do you think you would have had to approach your job slightly differently to a 25 year old man that would be doing? Oh God, absolutely, harder. absolutely. I mean, you just I had to be so much better than them. Mm. I had to be so much better than them. I had to work harder prove myself far more for them to trust me. And, and part of that is through the fact that I was never able to, I didn't have the trust of the people who had my schedule in their hands. Do you know what, I mean? what I've said about the DPs burning time, like so many of them threw me under the bus, so many of them, because they just take longer than they said they would. And then yeah. they go, oh, I didn't say that love, <laughs> you know. And, and so you just end up going, well, you did. And, that's not going to fucking fly and we're not doing this again tomorrow. And would you like a pre-call at 6am because you're going to have it, if you, you know what I mean? And just that yeah. slightly, you know, and oh, oh, right. You know, all that kind of rubbish that you kind of, you know, actually eventually they know they have to do their jobs. And if they do that long enough, they get found out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You just have to be better. And um, I'm, I'm, that's fine. I'm proud of that. But there comes a point where women should be allowed to be as bad as men are. Yeah. and still get employed do you know what I mean my husband says this in all seriousness this is very proper equality is for someone to be as terrible as they are and still get employed and still get forgiven and still and I was like yeah that's a good point that is a good point <laughs> I've never thought of it like that <laughs> it's true though right that's actual equality you're yeah. shit and you still get a job <laughs> Also, just actually uh, mm. kind of talking about something currently is um, COVID times. How is, because being on set, mm. usually there's hundreds of, well, it depends on the size of the production, but there's yeah. a lot of people on set. And yeah. how yeah. has that changed for you being in the COVID post, not post, we're not posted uh, yet, in the oh COVID God. world? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, it's really hard. Set used to be a very fun camaraderie, if that's even a word, place, you know, and it's not anymore. We have to... You know, so on, on the last job I did, I wasn't, I was the second shooting first. So there was a, uh, uh, my colleague was going on first. Um, and so I kind of did his COVID protocols for him so he could concentrate on the schedule. And I looked after the rest, but it was, it's very hard. There's, there's several things that are coming out of COVID, which is interesting, which is the lack of understanding of people the standby culture is a very, very difficult one to break. And I understand exactly why it's difficult to break. And really, we don't want to break it too hard because when COVID hopefully goes, we'll go back to that. And the other thing that I definitely rely on as a first is the ability to interrupt conversations. And the only way to do that is with your physical presence. Eventually, if I have to interrupt quickly, I touch someone's hand, I grab their arm and just go, we need to go. And 
touch shocks people into listening to the person who's touched them do you know what I mean and I don't mean inappropriately obviously but my director's just having a fucking chat and the sun is setting now now (laughs) now come on now oh yeah sorry 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 I was just talking about my holidays don't all right (laughs) save that for the car journey on the way home turnover you know so but I can't do that anymore and so you end up sort of slightly doing this slight dance on the periphery of somebody's vision waving at them they're like what are you doing (laughs) attempting to attract your attention (laughs) could we get on please oh yeah sure so it's it's exponentially harder and it's it's terrible and I'm I'm sure none of us we can't wait until we can do it properly you know normally and but suck it up until it goes away yeah how do you think tv slash film has changed since you began Mm. working in it the level of money that's in television now is staggering so i i've done i mean i grew up as my my first kind of breakthrough first in gigs were for bbc4 which um had wonderful stories and brilliant actors but absolutely no cash no money whatsoever and i'm eternally grateful that i learned to schedule on those things because you you had you learned schedule in the most frugal way possible yeah. um to save the productions money as much as you can and you know most productions that are at you know 100 million plus don't give a monkeys but it still means that when you do a lower budget thing that really do care about things like that you can work to it but just the money that's in television now is absolutely astounding yeah. absolutely astounding and just the the snobbery between television and film is definitely diluting. I don't know if it's gone, but it's definitely diluting just because television is so much bigger that it can um, not compete. That's the wrong word. But yeah, compete with some of the big films, you know, yeah. Game, of, Game of Thrones. You're not telling me that that doesn't have the production value of a, mm. a Hollywood film. Absolutely does. You know, um, and so I think the there has been a blurring of lines between television and film. And the other thing I'd say is that independent film has almost all but disappeared. It has. I mean, the, yeah, it was really interesting. I did, um, I did 24 for um, Fox and the producer on that was an incredibly experienced man in in both genres. Um, And I talked to him about it and he kind of went, no, because, you know, things, you know, if you took Transformers, say Transformers 8 still makes, 100 billion at the box office or something ridiculous and I was like I don't get it who's watching these films and he said China China because you can have makes perfect sense right you have this brilliant action sequence and you have like two lines of a little quip at the end of the scene and you're out that translates perfectly into almost any language whereas for weddings and funeral for argument's sake incredibly British very British humor doesn't you know doesn't translate into any language very well because it's so cultural yeah so it doesn't sell in the way globally that these big films do That's and true. he was he was basically going look you know cinema is dying it's it was if you think about it cinema was brought in to show films and and news cartoons to the population we don't actually need it anymore everyone's no. got that in their living room you know so there will come a point where cinema is obsolete and it will be like a horses horses are for rich people because we've got cars now <laughs> going to the cinema yeah, for rich people because we've got tellies now so no they've, they've changed enormously since I started both of them that brings me nicely onto my final question which is what are your three favorite to watch uh, recommendations 
that, that, I mean, this uh, this is a very difficult question. So, um, so. <laughs> yes, it really is. Um, I love the West Wing with a passion. Martin Sheen is, I mean, they're all absolutely fabulous. And Aaron Sorkin is a genius. So I'm definitely going with the West Wing. Um, I have loved it since a child. And for me, it's almost a perfect film. It's Disney's Jungle Book, I'm afraid. Ah! It's, it's, been, it's been my go-to you know and just the fact that Mowgli wants to become every creature and you know it's just it's it's perfect and the sound design in that film is excellent and the third one oh I think it's got to be Blackadder Goes Forth I which again I watched on loop as a child that's and again I actually passed my history GCSEs on Blackadder alone did you so (laughs) Yes. So therefore, thank you, Ben Elton. Uh, you got me through school, but um, it is it, it's pitch perfect and performances are wonderful. And, you know, it's a perfect representation of a dreadful era. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you go have a star? Because you worked on Avenue 5, which has got Hugh Laurie on it. And did you have a, yes. Yeah. Did you have a massive star starstruck moment then? I did, I did have a slight wobble with you. I've only ever had a wobble three times, I think, and he was one of them. But he, I mean, I tell everybody this story because I'm so over proud of it. But, you know, obviously that all settled down. And there was a point where um, I was working with Hugh on a particular scene and he had to wear a spacesuit. And um, I'd said to him, you know, because it's really, spacesuits are really, really heavy. So we'd kind of designed the shots around, he could take part of it off and da 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 da. And I went to him and I kind of said, okay, so you need to have the top half on for this, 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 and then we'll do that shot and you can take that bit off. Fine, no problem. And then he caught up with me and he said, oh no, surely that isn't right. Surely we should do this, 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 and this instead. And I said, that's much better. Yes, thank you. We'll do that instead. And he said, I don't want to blow my own trumpet. <laughs> to which I went, oh, you could at least have told me you had a trumpet. And he'd literally given me a line that he said in Blackadder, to me because I know every word of that show (laughs) and and there was and I was like oh come on you can't give me that setup and not expect me to kind of (laughs) and the look he gave me was oh you you (laughs) I I I love you but I hate you in equal measure and there was you know so we did actually have a conversation about it where you know he shot that 40 years ago and idiots like me are going to go 40 years ago yeah, I mean, Blackadder goes forth is 89, 89. Okay, so 30. Let's go with 30. Let's say it's 30 years old. But it's still old, you know. <laughs> and, you know, people like me who know it backwards, he's going to get that the rest of his life. And it's like, you probably only said those words, you know. Once or twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then 30 years later, some idiot like me gets overexcited by the fact, you've literally just said your line. <laughs> Amazing. but no he was he was very gracious about it but um no it was lovely to work with him he's a lovely man mm. oh that's a, a that's a very nice note to end on so i will say mm. thank you for your recommendations and thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been really really Not interesting at all. lovely to talk to you thank you mm. thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed my conversation with lydia tune into the next episode where i speak to costume designer john bloomfield and his wife illustrator Anne. Beverly. And if you get a moment, could you please like, follow or subscribe on your podcast platform and follow the Crew Chats podcast on Instagram. Thank you.